You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Heavenly and gracious Father, we thank you that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach you with both freedom and confidence. And Lord, it is with that freedom we come before you. The barrier of, of sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness and all the things that plagues not just humanity in general, but unfortunately even our lives, ourselves. We, Lord, we know that we have victory over them. Victory because of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, that we can uh, come before you uh, both in that freedom and that confidence. And we, we want to hear from you as we, we look into your word. It is your word, but it's your word not just in, uh, to everybody, though it is, it is to us as individuals, as families, as Red Sea. And we ask that you do speak to us. And we move forward now, Lord, in this time with the expectation that you will and that we will be moved by your spirit, guided by you, and to apply it in ways that will bring glory to you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Last Sunday, a church uh, opened its doors in Los Angeles, um, California. It looked like a typical Sunday church service in many respects. There were several hundred people there, including families and children. They, into this Hollywood auditorium. There's boisterous music, uh, live music. There were moments of reflection. There was an inspirational talk uh, about forgotten but yet important scientists and inventors. And there was even a little bit stand-up comedy. They launched their service in Los Angeles. The The only thing that was missing from this service was God. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm being critical of what they're doing. That's actually the point of the church. It's an atheist church. They're gathering together because they don't believe in God. In fact, they, they, um, they have a, 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 they call it a motto, like we have our, our mission statement to draw to Christ and develop a community and deploying the culture. They have a three-point, they call it a motto, though. They don't call it a mission statement. Theirs is live better, help often, and wonder more. That's inspirational. It's good stuff. Um, they said, one of the quotes of the people who attended it says, we, we, are char- we are charitable, we are good people, we're good parents, and we're just as good citizens as you are, and we're going to start a church to prove it. They're going to prove that there are those good things by starting a church. However, not all atheists are really enthusiastic about it. One self-proclaimed atheist said, the idea that you are building an entire organization based on what you don't believe sounds to me a little bit lacking sense. I would probably agree with him. There's actually a movement in the UK, Canada, and the United States of churches popping up on Sunday mornings, having services that look and feel just like Christian services, except for the emphasis is we're atheists. We do not believe in God. What is one thing that they not only don't do in that church, but they can't do in that church? What I'm asking. There you go. Thank you. They can't pray, right? By definition, since there's no God, they're not just saying we worship a different God. They're saying there isn't any. There is no higher power. We're it. 
So prayer will be totally absent from what they have, what they do. And um, today we're going to actually look at a prayer. And one of the things that they'll never be able to do is address God and talk to God. We're going to, it's something that we take for granted, something we do in our homes, our private lives here at Red Sea quite often. We're going to do tonight at the business meeting. Uh, part of it's going through the budget, which won't probably take that long. Okay? The rest of the time is going to be given to pray for Red Sea and the people of Red Sea and St. John's. We will pray because we believe not only in a God, but a specific God. We don't only just pray to God. But the Bible teaches us that often that most of the time when we pray, what we say should be about God. It should be about him, not just to him. It should be about who he is and what he has done for us. And a majority, uh, a much if not a majority of our praying should revolve around who God is, not just what we want, our requests. We've been going through the Old Testament. We have this Sunday, and Josh is wrapping it up next Sunday. And we have actually preached through the entire Old Testament. Um, And some of you are like, yes, okay. (laughs) Um, But we've done that, okay? And it's it's very interesting that, that, that we're to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they're after the exile, and they're coming together. And I was reading through Nehemiah the past couple weeks. And I got to chapter 9 of Nehemiah, which we're going to look at today. And I said, this is an awesome way for us to summarize what we've been doing this past year. Because Nehemiah, actually it's in Nehemiah, but Ezra prays through the whole, whole Old Testament. We'll see that in a minute. We last week looked at Ezra. We looked at the conflict that they did, coming to build a temple. And that they had external opposition of compromise, deception, accusation, and threat. They also had internal oppositions of discouragement, fear, the burden of the work, and remembering past glories. Uh, Nehemiah is a parallel book. Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book. They they go together. They overlap in so many ways. Um, And in the first part of Nehemiah, 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6, it's about the restoration of Jerusalem. The walls built around Jerusalem are rebuilt. And and he goes through and they describe that. In the chapters 7 through 13, though, it turns to the people. And it starts saying to the people that they need, not just the walls need restoration, but we as the people of Israel need to be restored to the biblical truth and living for God the way we should. We're still under occupied land, but we now can worship the way we were intended to worship. So Nehemiah comes, and he's there. He helps them build, rebuild a wall. And we're going to look at Nehemiah 9. So I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses. We're going to read a little bit, talk, read, talk, read, talk. We're not going to read through the whole chapter right at the start. So it's going to be up on your screen, Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to read the first, first five verses to get us started. Now, on the 24th day of this, of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, uh, Bani, Kedmiel, Shebani, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani. I assume it's a different Bani than the previous Bani, okay? Um, And um, Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbani, Sherebai, Hodai, 
Shabbani, and don't forget, Pethai, said, now this is the point, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They got there. They've been reading the word for days, actually, previous to chapter 8. They've been reading, having it explained to them, and they get together. And the result of that is, let's praise God for who he is. Now, Ezra gets up and says a prayer. The rest of this chapter is a prayer that Ezra is going to pray. And what's interesting, as we'll see, is this prayer follows the biblical story. It goes through from Genesis to the books of Kings. And he highlights, just like we've been doing this past year, highlights big high points and says, talks about who God is during that time. Now, what I want you to focus on in this prayer is the prayer is, is basic, the basis of the prayer, the emphasis of the prayer is not a request. He does have a request at the end. But the basis and the focus of this prayer is the character of God demonstrated in his covenant faithfulness. His prayer is about who God is and what he's done. In fact, from verses 6 to verses 31, he talks about God. His request comes at the end, and there's only a few verses. He spends most of his time reminding, they do, he's praying, but they remind themselves, who is it this God that we praise and worship and that we're turning to in our time of need? If you're a Christian here, especially if you're part of Red Sea, and we, we're calling us, you to more and more prayer as we do things, I, I want you to think about your prayer life personally or as a family. Think about how you pray, and as we go through this prayer, think, this, is this the way we pray? Is this the way I pray? What, what would it look like for you to pray like this? I often find myself jumping quickly to requests. Lord, it's me again. Here's my list. And I must confess, and often it is not much time reminding myself and talking to him about who he is and what he's done. So think about, what would it mean for you to pray like this? What, what would change in your prayer life? What would change for you if you prayed like this? If you're not a Christian here today, maybe, um, and I would like you just to listen to the generosity of God. Because this prayer is mostly about God. And if you're unsure of who God is and what he's done and what you need to do to get right with God or whatever it is you're wrestling with or the barrier you might feel between you and God to, to become a Christian, to respond to the gospel, just listen to his, about God's generosity, his patience with people, his mercy, his love. And it, it's going to be repeated over and over again because all through the hundreds and thousands of years of his working with Israel, God's generosity, his patience, his mercy, his loving kindness is repeated over and over and over again. So what I'm going to emphasize today is that, that um, this prayer is about mostly about God. And I'm going to give us eight things that it says to us about God. I don't expect you to remember them all. But what I would like you to do is think about as you pray, if you're a prayer, as you pray, do you ever address God in this way? Do you ever use that? Do you think of God in that way when you pray? So as we go through these. The first one is God as the only God. God as the only God. Where do we see that? In verse 6, if you put up verse 6, he says, You are the Lord, you alone. This is how he begins his prayer. Let me, let me, let me get straight who I'm praying to. You alone are the Lord. Just like in Exodus, the Ten Commandments 
begin with the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before besides me. You, can, you, you can't break any of the other commandments unless you break that one first. If you get God wrong, you get the rest of it wrong. And in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6, when they were teaching their children, it always began with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The, the emphasis of believing in one, and not just one, but one, the one true God, is something that Israel has always emphasized. The Bible always emphasizes. And idolatry has always been, worshiping false gods has always been the perennial problem of people. It's the heart of sin. It's the heart of what, where things go wrong. Back to this one thing. Is there one God? Is there more? Who am I worshiping? Who is God and who is not God? And this substitution of something else for God is at the heart of sin. In fact, it begins way back in Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve. He comes to her and says, uh, and, and you can eat of any of the tree, can you eat? And then um, she says that you, um, I'm trying not to read it all. Um, you, can, you can eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman says, I'm going to read it. Uh, you may eat from any of the tree of the garden. God said this, but he said, you should not eat of the fruit in the middle of the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's Satan's temptation to Eve and Adam. And knowing good from evil. So the women, woman uh, saw that the tree was good for food and that was delight for the eyes. And, and the tree was des- something desired to make them wise. So she took the fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her. From the very beginning, idolatry, wanting to be God or worshiping something else other than the true God, has always gotten people into trouble and is the heart of sin. It's the perennial sin from the Tower of Babel. To the, and we've, we've gone through these things over and over again as we go this past year. The Tower of Babel, the golden calf after the Exodus, the, through the judges, the good and bad kings, the fall of Solomon. Every, even the very reason they were taken into exile from Babylon was because they didn't get this one right. We didn't worship the one true God. We mixed it in with other things. And don't just think that it's worshiping God, uh, idolatry is just simply um, um, bowing down to statues or something like that. Jesus warned about idolatry. You cannot serve both God and money, for example. You cannot worship both. You have to pick one. That's a perennial problem in our culture, in our lives. Paul even said that covetousness, wanting other things, is idolatry. So the first, the first thing this, this prayer says right from the shoot is there's one God. There's only one God. But the second thing verse 6 says is that God is God is the creator. God is the creator. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So he goes from there's one God to God the creator. God the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as the Bible starts. Romans 1 says that everybody can look at creation and know that there's a God because God has ordained it, that through the sophistication, that his divine power and his attributes, uh, divine nature, are clearly seen by what is created. The world knows that there's a creator. We're not deists though sometimes we Christians function as deists. A deist is someone who believes that God exists, created everything, 
but then kind of is aloof, is kind of off to the side watching just to see how things play out. We're not deists. We believe God is very much directly involved with his creation, and that's why we pray to him. Isaiah says, have you, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I personally often pray to God as creator. I don't know if you guys, it might be unfamiliar to you. Do you ever address God as creator when you pray to him? I often do, especially when I'm stressed. Or I'm having a time, I get up in the middle of the night, and I'm working through some things, and I have a prayer time. I find that I often am addressing God as creator. You, God, are the creator, sustainer of everything. And I start just rehearsing his attributes of creator. And it's very comforting to me, to be honest, that I'm praying to the God who's control of everything. He made everything. He controls everything. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. Everything, not just the entire universe, but every aspect of my life. Every aspect of not just the physical world, but the spiritual world and all the powers and governments and authorities, it's, it's all under him. So I often find myself praying to God, you are the creator. It's interesting in Acts chapter 4, when the church is being persecuted, they gather together to pray about the persecution. Their, their lives are being threatened, and they begin their prayer with, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then they go on. I find it interesting, in a time of persecution, they turn to God who created everything, that's who we're addressing in our prayers. It wasn't all that they prayed, but they did. It's more than that. He's also He's also the God who's a covenant maker. He's a God who's a covenant maker. Look at verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And you gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made, him the co- made with him the covenant to give to his offspring to the land of, of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Pezerite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous, or you are just. We, we talked a lot. In fact, we've touched on all the major covenants within the Old Testament. The covenant of creation, covenant of redemption, Genesis chapter 3. Covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the promised new covenant in Jeremiah. So Ezra, knowing all those things, picks Abraham as a sample of God as a covenant maker. He picks the covenant with Abraham and says, God, you are the one who makes covenant. And notice he mentions in there that he, God changed Abram's name to Abraham. Why, did, why does he mention that? It's true. It's in Genesis 17. And the reason he does that is because God gave Abraham a new identity. It's not just that we had a covenant. A covenant, by the way, is, a, is defined as this. It's not just a contract or agreement. We, we sometimes think of a covenant as an agreement or a contract or, or a treaty. It's more than that. A covenant, biblically, is a commitment to relationship. It's a commitment to relationship. And there are things that make a relationship go well, and there's things that make a relationship not go so well. And so God says, I'm committing to you. I'm going to do this work for it to be a healthy relationship. I promise I'll do my part. He's inviting people to do their part to keep it harmonious. That's the struggle Israel always had. But God changed Abraham's name, Abram's name to Abraham, and he gave him a new identity. And he did it because he promised him that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And that his nations means a multitude of people. 
So he changed his name to mean, to the identity, what the promise is going to be. God is a covenant maker. But notice how it ends there. He reminds, reminds God of that you're a covenant maker. And then he says, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God isn't just a covenant maker. God is a covenant keeper. He always keeps his covenants. Why? He tells us, because God is righteous. God is just. God cannot deny himself. So he will always keep his covenants. He is a faithful covenant keeper. He goes on and describes God as the, as the great deliverer. God as deliverer. Verses 9 through 11. And you saw the affliction of your, our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they had acted, acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through amidst, on the sea, amidst of the sea on dry ground. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into a mighty waters. He describes the deliverance of, uh, of Israel out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea. And when they got over to the other side of the Red Sea, we have in Exodus 15, Moses' famous song that he sang. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has, he has become my salvation. To this, my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. That's the God who delivers. That's the God who delivers. That, that Ezra wanted them to remind the people, and he wanted to pray. And throughout the rest of the scripture, this, this event of the deliverance from Egypt was a hallmark event. The prophets, David, others, re- repeatedly said, remember, Israel, remember when God delivered us from, um, from Egypt? Remember how miraculous that was? Remember that when, before you start going, uh, becoming unfaithful. And you're not sure that he can give us the promised land? Oh, remember what he did back there? Remember this great salvation event? In fact, the Ten Commandments begins. We often we start listening. What are the Ten Commandments? We start listening to the commandments. But the actual opening line of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There's always grace and deliverance before this commands and law. God has provided for us the salvation and deliverance, before he says, oh, by the way, now that you're free, let me show you how to live as free people. That's what the law is for. But, but he always does that. And the, and the deliverance of God repeatedly is shown and always going, often pointing back to what they were. But he's not just the... the He's not only the only God, the creator, the covenant maker, and deliverer. He's also a God as sustainer. A God as sustainer. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. And as I read them, I want you to pay attention to something. 
I want you to see how the, he goes back and forth in this. He alternates back and forth between God's graciousness and compassion, and he contrasts it with Israel's disobedience and the faithfulness of the people, faithlessness of the people. So listen to how he goes back and forth as he's praying. Verse, beginning at verse 12 and going to 21. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the, in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made, made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes of the law of Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven and from their hun- for, for their hunger and brought water for them out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and, and, and possess the land that you had sworn to them to give to them. But, verse 16, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return, them, return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of, out of Egypt, and, you, and, and committed great blasphemies, verse 19, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way that did not depart from, from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night and the light far for them to, the way by which they should go. You gave, them good, you, gave, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So he summarizes a big time there of going through the wandering in 40 years in the desert. And he says, for 40 years, God, you sustained them. Even though they were stiff-necked, presumptuous people and rebelled against you, you were patient and gracious with them. And you supplied for them. Even the mundane thing, well, it's not mundane, food and water in a desert for 40 years is a long time. And sometimes I think we think of it in generalizations and we forget sometimes how God sustains us and provides for us. And sometimes it's, we can be, oh yeah, he provides for us jobs and health and those kind of generalities. But sometimes God gives us a glimpse about how he miraculously intervenes and supplies for us. When Monica and I were first married, we lived in Arizona and uh, we, we uh, were both going to school and I worked part-time as a janitor in a church. Which, should, which should, you should hear, part-time, janitor, church. We're broke, okay? You don't get a lot of money doing that. So that's what I did to pay the bills. We had a little apartment. And we, 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 um, we're, we rent, not infrequently, not, not all the time, but there were times when things got pretty tight, to say the least. And one time, we were out of food. I, I don't mean that we didn't like what was in the pantry. I mean, we were out of food. We're done. We had nothing. And so we said, you know what? It's a couple of days before I get paid. 
Let's pray. So uh, we, get, we sit down. I remember vividly. The bed, we hold hands, we start praying. Lord, we're hungry. We need food. And we just start simply asking God for food. And there's a knock on the door. But being the devout prayers that we are, I ignore it. Okay? I mean, we're, we're praying for crying out loud. It's rude to stop when people knock on the door when you're praying. So I keep praying, Lord, we need food. We need groceries. You know how I get grumpy when I don't eat. We need groceries. And there's another knock on the door, a little louder. Now I'm annoyed. But steadfast, we keep praying. So we keep praying. And I said, Lord, forgive those people. We need food. We keep going. A little while later, a big pound on the door. Now I'm ticked, okay? I'm, sorry, God, got to go deal with those people, okay? So I go to the front door, I open the door, and there's Andy and Delphina, both of them holding what? Bags of groceries. Absolutely. Uh, what are you guys doing? Well, we were grocery shopping, and we thought you might need some food. Nah, we're good. We're praying. Thanks. No, I, we accepted it, um, very, very, very thankfully. But it was one of those things that we still remember that is like very poignant. Like it, while we were actually, if it, come, if it happened a couple hours later, we probably would not have connected the dots. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some of us, me, a little not that intuitive to see the connected dots. So God had to connect it big time for me to say, stop praying for food and go ha- get the food. Go pick up the manna, Royce. Okay. And that's what he does. Often, God is the sustainer in many ways in our lives, and we sometimes fail to connect the dots. But it doesn't mean that he's not sustaining us in our lives. The other thing that God is, is a provider. Provider. He's the only God. He's the creator, the covenant maker, deliverer, sustainer, provider. Verses 22 through 25. And listen here, again, for the contrast, but particularly what God is doing for them. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them your every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shohan, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land into, that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So that the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand, and their kings and their peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And and they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of the houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. I love this line. I tell Monica the other day, I was, we were going out to dinner, and I was telling her, I love this line. So they ate and were filled and became fat. Isn't that awesome? These guys are satisfied. They ate, they were filled, and they became fat. And, we'll finish the verse, delighted themselves in your great goodness. God provided for them, provided for them over and over again. One of the other lessons that I learned when in Arizona, when we were going to school, is when we first arrived in August, in, this, was in August, it's hot in Tucson. It's hot. I remember driving through the desert, going someplace, and it's like 113 degrees. 
And don't give me this dry heat stuff either, okay? Hot's hot, okay? And I'm going through there, and I'm driving through the desert, and I see this big, uh, not big, but it's a traffic sign that says, do not enter when flooded. Uh, I'm in a desert. That makes no sense whatsoever. What do you, what do you mean, do not enter when flooded? There's, there's no water. It's a desert, okay? Well, I come to learn that, um, that in, the, in the small dips in the road where there were, they don't have rivers or streams in southern Arizona, they have washes, which most of the time are dry. There's nothing there. But when it rains, they fill very quickly with water, and the walls of water go rushing down. That's why they're called washes. And uh, if you're driving along and you think there's a little water on the road and it's, you're crossing a wash, the chances are it's washed out the road or that just the flow, the push of that water will wash your car away. So I learned very quickly that that sign, though apparently did not make sense, after, for somebody who lives in Arizona, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, now I've, we've heard that they have like railroad crossing guards in many roads because people still drive into the water when it's flooded. Why are you saying that, Rice? There are some things in the Bible, many things, that when you first read them, they don't make sense. And you read them. And, and this is one of those things where God is the provider for people. All through that, he kept, I provide, I gave this to them. I chased out the enemies. I did all this stuff for them. And the result for that, they ate, they were filled, and became fat. But that's the blessing of it, but it's also the curse of it. Previously to this, in Deuteronomy 6, God said these things, and this is the do not enter when flooded stuff. When I read this, it didn't make sense. And it says this, he says, and when the Lord, and this is God speaking to them before they go into the promised land. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you the great and good cities that you did not build, and the houses full of good things that you did not fill, and the cisterns that you did not dig, and the vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That, that's the part, there's the sign that I didn't get. What do you mean forget? And isn't it true for most of us, I think if we stop and think about our lives, God is providing for us all the time it's usually when things are going well and we're full and satisfied that we forget God. Most of us, I think, if we compare it our time when we're stressed or in trouble, our prayers versus the times when everything is firing on all cylinders and our prayers, they're not the same kind of prayers. And often we forget the blessing of God for that. And he provides all sorts of things. Don't just think materially. There's possessions, but there's time, there's relationships, there's experiences, there's opportunities. And sometimes, actually often, we reap the benefit of somebody else's labor. We, we didn't put the energy into it, but we get the benefits of it. Whether it's the labor of somebody practicing worship, we get to worship, but we weren't here Wednesday night practicing all the time, or whatever. God does that, and we benefit, and he provides for us, and he wants us not to forget that he is the great provider. He is something else. He is merciful. Look at verses 26 to 31. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. I, I want to stop here. The previous verse was, they ate and were filled 
and became fat, and they delighted themselves in God's goodness. The next verse. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast, the law, and cast your law behind their back. How's, how's that for an image? Here's God's law. And, you, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of your enemies and you, who made them suffer. And in the time of your suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had, re- had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And yet when they had turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. For many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the, of the peoples of the, of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make, make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. He goes through again how awesome, how he kept pouring out, helping people. And there's a cycle there. You notice the cycle? He just covered a couple thousand years of Israel's history. I did this for you, you turned away. I did this for you, you turned away. I did this for you, it turned away. It's been a little bit redundant, hasn't it, over the past year? But that's the point. The emphasis here is not just on their turning away and being stiff-necked, but on the God's mercy. And as I pointed out, chapter 26 begins with, okay, God gives them all these things, nevertheless, they disobey. It ends with that part 31 says, even though they kept disobeying and you kept putting up with them, nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Even though they respond in rebellion, God always responds to the rebellion in mercy. And and if you notice the cycle in there, it's discipline. God is constantly, we would understand it to be disciplining the nation, not just judging them to punish them, but his goal was always repeated in those verses, warning them, come back to me. Come back to me. Do what is right to receive the blessing. Discipline is merciful. If you're a parent, you know what that means, right? You discipline children not to be mean, not because you're angry. You discipline your children because you love them and care for them, and you want to instruct them. And you, in your mercy, you don't want them to get what they deserve. In your mercy, you discipline them. And the book of Hebrews talks, the 12 talks about that, how God uses mercy. And you know what? When we're, and he even uses parents as an example of that. Parents sometimes are um, disciplined. And it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant for the parent. It's not pleasant for the kid. It's sometimes. But in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, he talks about the question is, do you learn from your discipline? When you're disciplined, do you, do you learn? Are you trained by it? And God has always through history disciplines people. He still does it. It's not just judgment. 
out of his mercy, he provides discipline. And the last one is that he's personal. He's personal. So far, we've read from verse 6 to 31, he has not made a single request. He has just been saying to God, this is who you are, this is what you've done. Let me remind you of all the things you've done. The vast majority of his prayer is just about who God is and what he's done. Now he gets to a request. Verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem, let not all the hardships seem little to you that have come upon us upon our kings and our princesses and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great in your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn and, and turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And yet, its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. And they rule over our bodies and over our, our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. We'll stop there. He is personal. The reason I say God is personal, notice how he begins it. He's finally turning to the request. He spent all this time talking about the God of the fathers, God of the scriptures. And he begins in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God. Our God. Not just the God of our fathers, not just the God of the scriptures, not just the God of our history, though it's all true, but Ezra's turning to the people now and saying, you are our God, personally, you're here with us now, and he, he, he exclaims to him, you are the great and mighty and awesome who keeps covenant and steadfast love, we ask that you listen and pay attention to where we're at, and then he rehearses why they're even there. Because their fathers disobeyed. But he's not just blaming it on their fathers. He's saying, God, you are our God. In the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of the crisis, they are an occupied nation. They've been given a little bit of freedom, but ultimately not complete freedom. They have confidence and assurance that God is their God. God is their God. In fact, he says, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. And if you remember, but way back in verse 6, Verse 8, I mean, he concluded that first part of that song of this prayer. He says, and you kept your promise for you are righteous. He ends the prayer saying the same thing. You have been righteous. You have been just in all that has come upon us. God is not just a God of theory or the Bible. He's a personal God that they are praying to because they need real answers. Now, we've gone through that God is the only God to creator covenant maker, deliverer, sustainer, provider, merciful, and personal. If you just pause for a moment and think about, about what you have, how you pray, do you ever address God in these, any of these ways? 
Do you ever stop and say, I'm going to talk to you, God, because you're the great covenant maker and you've made covenants that I'm a part of? Do you ever talk to him as a sustainer or provider for you? Do you ever do it? It's appropriate to do so, to remind him of who he is. Not because he's forgotten, by the way, but because we have. And that's what Ezra did for this vast majority of the prayer. Let's, people, let's remember who we're praying to. And he rehearsed from Genesis to Kings, uh, high points of the Bible. But this series is called The Road to Emmaus. Why? Because we said at the beginning that when Jesus in Luke 24 said, talking to the two on the road to Emmaus, said, all the scripture is about me. All that you have. If you read the entire Bible all the way along the line, you're going to learn more and more about Christ the Savior. And I don't think it's any less true in Ezra's prayer. Now, is Jesus' name mentioned? No. But the fact is, all these are fulfilled in Christ. Every single one of them. I just want to highlight some for you very quickly. I just want to highlight some. Jesus is the only God. Jesus is the only God. In Romans, he's called that. He says, um, um, they, are, they are Israelites, and they do among, they, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the coming of the, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He just named Christ as God Overall, we also know in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if we're not clear what he means by that, he goes on and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only God. But Jesus is also the Creator. We're told in fact, Jesus is the Creator. In Colossians, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus was the one who created the world. Jesus is also the covenant maker. All the, all the covenants are fulfilled in Jesus, all the ones we've listed. But Jesus himself is the one who formalizes and makes the new covenant. Remember, a covenant is a commitment to relationship. Paul tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. But the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death of one has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, committed under the first covenant. God's, Jesus is the mediator. He's the one who represents the new covenant. And understand, it's not just lands and blessings, those kind of material things. It's eternal blessings. Jesus' new covenant, the issue at stake here, is eternal blessings. We also know in Corinthians that when the Lord took the, Jesus was sitting at the table and he broke the bread and he took the cup. And he says, in the same way, he took the cup and after supper he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you reclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
That is why we take communion every Sunday, to remind ourselves of his death for us. We proclaim his death. But what was he saying his death was about? Jesus is saying, I am making a new covenant. I have a commitment to relationship that I want you guys to remember every time you gather. And what we're remembering is his commitment to us. So much of a commitment that he died for our sins. That is the great covenant maker that Christ is. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the deliverer. He was delivered over. Uh, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus delivers us from our sins. He redeems us back. He also told us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for many. So not only is we delivered from our sin and our need for sin, but he is also part of that, delivered us so that we can be reconciled close, have a relationship with God. And in John, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil, which began in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus is the sustainer. He, since, since then we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in a time of need. Paul also said part of the paradox of the Christian walk, part of the struggle of our Christian walk, is that we need God to sustain us. He need God to sustain us. And Paul, for example, one of the marquee Christians of the New Testament, talks about his struggles in many different places. But one of them, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about he had asked God to relieve him of some struggles that he had, some things in his life. And he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why is in our weakness can we be strong? Because Christ sustains us. Jesus is the provider. He is the provider. For our sake, God, the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's the provider. Not only did he provide forgiveness for our sin, our sin is transferred to Christ, but even more so, we get Christ's righteousness. We're actually better off. We've talked about this numerous times. We're actually better off that Christ died because when God looks at us, he sees perfect righteousness of Christ, not our own, even if we had been sinless. And the things that Christ gives us, the benefits of his death on the cross, are just numerous. The gospel truths. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. The gospel truth, the benefits of that, applied to our life for multiple Justification that we are just, justified, we are made righteous. Redemption, we are bought back. Somebody paid a price that we owed. Reconciliation, the barrier between us and God has been removed, so now we can be, as I prayed earlier, in faith, we can approach God with both freedom and confidence. 
Remember that we talked a couple weeks ago about propitiation. And you guys use that all the time now when you talk, right? Propitiation. That God's wrath was absorbed. The wrath deserved us was absorbed. God, Jesus provided it. Adoption, sanctification, glorification. There's no condemnation for anyone in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. No one can separate us from God. All these things are provided for us by Christ. Our identity. We talk a lot about our identity. The Red Sea, our identities of being servants, family, family. We're children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're ambassadors, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the citizens of heaven, chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, a temple of the living God. All those things are things provided to us because of what Christ has done. We don't earn them. We receive them. Somebody summarized it this way. When, we, when we're in Christ, we get a new history. We get a new identity, and we get a new destiny. And that's what Christ provides for us. Jesus is also the expression of God's mercy. Hebrews says that therefore he, had, he, he made, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to become human so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for their sins. So Jesus, to pay the absorbed wrath, had to become one of us. He had to identify us. To be merciful, he became one of us. In Ephesians, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The reason Christ came and what we will do for eternity will be going, wow, God is a merciful God because of what we have in Christ Jesus. But Jesus is also personal. And John chapter 6 is a fascinating chapter. He begins with the feeding of the 5,000. I think there's 5,000. There's a lot of people, big crowds. And Jesus starts feeding them. They're loving it. They're, they're going great. And then he starts talking about himself. He talks about dying for sin and that kind of stuff and, and taking up your cross. And by the end of the chapter, we read this, chapter 6. After, after this, after he talked about his dying for sin and his discipleship, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, twelve are left. Thousands started the day. Twelve are left. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And listen to this part. And we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus shared all that with thousands of people. At the end of the day, 12 said, we believe. We have no place else to go. It was very, very personal for them. Likewise, Jesus one time was talking with his disciples and he said to them, he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, come back from that. Some say Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them a question that we all have to ask. And someday in the day of judgment, we will be asked. Who do you say that I am? Forget all the religious answers that everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? 
Have you asked yourself that question? Have you answered that question? Peter spoke up, and he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. You are all these things, and you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, You didn't get this, Peter, because you're smart or because somebody told you this. Peter, you understand that because my Father in heaven has shown that to you. I want to end today by asking you, who do you say Christ is? If you don't know him, you've never responded to the call of the gospel and that Christ died for your sins, I encourage you to come up to talk to me, talk to Josh, talk to Doug or whoever who's up here that we want to pray for you. Can you answer that question? Maybe some of you are struggling. Maybe you've kind of wandered. You've, uh, you, as, like, as Israel's done over and over again, kind of got off the beaten path and, and, and not listened to the warning and have forgotten how great God and gracious God is to you. We also encourage you to come up and get prayer. The rest of you, I ask that you think about your prayer life this week. Who are you praying to? It's okay. We should pray to God the Father. We're instructed to do that. But I'd also encourage you to think of some of these other names. Maybe even read through Nehemiah 9 and rehearse what he has done. We also want to invite you all to the communion table. If you have responded to the question, who do you say that I am? And your answer is, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. We ask you to come and take communion. And to remember, while you're up here taking communion is because of the generosity and mercifulness of God. That he is a covenant-keeping God. And that is a sign of the covenant we have with him. He has made a commitment to relationship. And we're up at the table because he is faithful. Let's pray. God, you you are the only God. God, I pray that we can pray as Ezra did, that you are great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Lord, I pray that our hearts would just celebrate and rejoice in the generosity that you have provided for us in Christ and the lessons of all these months looking at the nation of Israel and and what you've done for us, may we be a people who are not stiff-necked, but people who rejoice and just celebrate over and over again your awesomeness. We thank you, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.